Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for an evening of um, just real fellowship, Lord, that's uh, not necessarily based on uh, whether there's coffee or cookies, Lord, but uh, just being together and glorifying Jesus, lifting up our God, and uh, just proclaiming the praises of him who came to save us out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. And so, Lord, we would just pray for uh, just the power and presence of your spirit in this place as we just endeavor to be disciples and make disciples and further your kingdom and, Lord, to just know uh, and understand you, Lord, uh, as we just study just these um, doctrines of salvation, Lord, would you just plant them in our heart and, uh, Lord, protect our body in its doctrine here at Calvary Chapel, Lord. Uh, would you just train each person here to, to just be champions of truth and to defend and to preach the truth, Lord. Uh, we know that uh, there's a lot of folks here tired today and um, long work days and lots on their mind and maybe even just frustrating things, Lord. And we would just pray that you'd just, uh, even now, Lord, just be working in those situations, Lord, to resolve them or to bring peace or to um, let those things turn out smoothly, Lord, uh, where there's just tired eyelids and just weak bodies, Lord, um, myself included, God, would you just give us strength tonight to to learn well and to teach well, Lord, and um, Lord, even redeem our time tonight, Lord, that it would just, uh, just flow just uh, well tonight, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So uh, for those that are grabbing some food, go ahead and grab it, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started for the sake of time. Got a chapstick up here real quick. Had 20 minutes to do that. <laughs> so tonight we're looking at uh, soteriology. Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Okay? Soteriology discusses how Christ's death secures the salvation of those who believe. It helps us to understand the doctrines of redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation, and substitutionary atonement. Amen? Amen. <laughs> so, uh, salvation is the deliverance from danger or suffering. Uh, it means uh, to deliver or to protect. And the idea carries with it... Uh, the idea of victory, health, or preservation. Sometimes the Bible uses the word saved or salvation to refer to temporal, physical deliverance, such as Paul's deliverance from prison. But more often the word salvation concerns an eternal, spiritual deliverance. When Paul told the Philippian jailer what he must do to be saved, he was referring to the jailer's eternal destiny. As in Acts 16, 30 and 31, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, Jesus equated being saved with entering the kingdom of God. 
Matthew 19, 24, and 25. Uh, Paul, will you read that out? Matthew 19, 24, and 25. First page. A definition of the Christian doctrine of salvation would be this. The deliverance by the grace of God from eternal punishment for sin, which is granted to those who accept or receive by faith God's conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. I want to say that one more time. The deliverance by the grace of God from eternal punishment for sin, which is granted to those who accept or receive by faith God's conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Salvation is available in Jesus alone and is dependent on God alone for provision, assurance, and security. The question is, what are we saved from? In the Christian doctrine of salvation, we are saved from wrath. That is from God's judgment of sin. Uh, Nikki, will you read Romans 5, 9 there? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Right. And uh, Jason, can you read 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 there? I'll read it. Okay, he's got his mouth. Don't steal my verse. I caught about half of that. I think I heard wrath in there, though, so that gets the point across. Our sin has separated us from God, and the consequence of sin is death. Biblical salvation refers to our deliverance from the consequence of sin, and therefore involves the removal of sin. I realize that... uh, uh, you know, between the last school of ministry, the last time I was here, and uh, Sunday morning, the last couple of weeks, we're getting a lot of gospel, okay? Hey, don't ever let that get old, all right? Don't ever let that get old. You let the other stuff get old, okay? But you camp out at the gospel, all right? And remember that uh, what we learned in our Bible study workshops and stuff, that these redemptive indicatives, okay, all of these things that signal our salvation, that's what moves us towards moral imperatives or, you know, practical outworking of things, okay? So camp out at the cross, and out of that we'll have all kinds of flows of, like, the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of godliness, okay? So love, love the doctrine of salvation, okay? Love it <laughs> and uh, own it. Um, who does the saving? Only God can remove sin and deliver us from sin's penalty. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us through Christ Jesus before time began. Okay, so is it us? Do we save ourselves? No, it's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Um, Cheryl, will you read Titus 3 5? It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
saves. So God does the saving. And how does he save? In the Christian doctrine of salvation, God has rescued us through Christ. Ginger, John 3.17 there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to send the world through him like Specifically, it was Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection that achieved our salvation. Uh, Blaine there, Romans 5.10. Easy, can you read Ephesians 1 7? Can you? Oh, there are blanks. Here, let me take this one. It was a true test of if you're really saved or not, but we'll. Uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, forgiveness, grace. Scripture is clear that salvation is the gracious, undeserved gift of God. Easy take uh, this Ephesians passage here. So scripture is clear that salvation is the gracious, undeserved gift of God and is only available through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Key passage there that it's only available through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that always sticks with me, that no other name under heaven given among men uh, but the name of Jesus. How do we receive salvation? Right? We are saved by faith, and first we must hear the gospel. First we must hear the gospel. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted... After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, first, there was the hearing of the gospel. Uh, second, then we must believe, fully trust the Lord Jesus. Romans one sixteen, Lindsay. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So that salvation is for everyone who believes. Uh, this involves repentance. Yeah, believing involves repentance. A changing of mind about sin and Christ. Acts 3.19, Kev, can you read that? <laughs> All right. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, 
Okay, so part of this conversion process is hearing, believing, repenting, and calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, Leandra. Uh, so, this, you know, is really part of the salvation process, all right? What we have here is a little bit more the what's going on on the man's end of thing, okay? Uh, next week, we're going to take a look at kind of the balance of God's sovereign work in salvation, his calling, his effectual calling. Uh, and look at that balance of uh, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty over salvation, okay? Uh, so this is how we receive salvation. Hearing, believing, repenting, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, this is all part of the reception of the atoning work of Christ. Uh, here's some false theories on the atonement. First of all, it was the ransom to Satan theory, okay? Developed by Origen, uh, held by Augustine. The view is that Satan held people captive as prisoners of war. Because of this, a ransom had to be paid to Satan, not to God, okay? Uh, the problem is it was actually God's holiness that was offended by sin, not Satan's. And so payment was made to God to avert wrath. Satan did not have any power to free man. Satan is judged by the cross, uh, not made a benefactor by the cross. Uh, the ransom that we read of in like Mark 10:45, that the son of man did not come into the world to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, this ransom delivers us from the wrath of God, the power of sin, uh, the power of death and the curse of the law. We'll look at some of that later tonight. Uh, the recapitulation theory. Right? Some of this is just to kind of get you writing it down. It helps you follow along, but also kind of helps plant it a little bit in your mind. Oh, don't act like you didn't hear it the first time. <laughs> recapitulation. Oh, come on. You're a college graduate. Yeah, again. <laughs> R E C A P. I-T-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. The recapitulation theory was advanced by Arrhenius in 130 to 200-ish A.D. The view was that Jesus went through all the experiences as Adam, including sin, so that he was able to succeed where Adam failed. Uh, the truth is that Jesus is known as the last Adam, but he had no personal encounter with sin in any way, shape, or form. He didn't sin, essentially. Okay? He was in, tested in all points, yet was without sin. Uh, this view neglects the atonement by saying that it was Jesus' life that saves, not his death. Uh, the commercial theory, developed by Anselm in 1033 to 1109 A.D., the view is that through sin, God was robbed of the honor due to his name, or due to him. 
The only resolution of this problem was by punishing sinners or through satisfaction. God chose to resolve the problem through the gift of his son. Through Jesus' death, honor was brought to God, and Jesus received a reward which he shares with sinners. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life if you live by the gospel. Uh, The problem is God's mercy is emphasized, but justice and holiness are at the expense. The substitutionary sufferings of Christ are ignored, while the concept of penance is embraced. Uh, You get so much satisfaction needed for so much violation. We see that in in Roman Catholicism. Uh, The moral influence theory, moral, M, O, thanks. A liberal stance advocated by Abelard, 1079, I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong, all these names probably, 1079 to 1142, the view is that the death of Christ was not necessary as a compensation for sin. Rather, through the death of Christ, God demonstrated his love for humanity in such a way that sinners' hearts would be softened and brought to repentance. In other words, this says that God did not need a payment for breaking his law, and that the death of Christ was an example of how much God loved us. Problem is, this states the basis for Jesus' death was his love rather than God's holiness. Okay? Uh, it teaches the moving of people's emotions will lead them to repentance. This view fails to take into account that many verses that speak of Jesus dying for our sins. Jesus' death was substitutionary, not merely the means of influencing sinners by a demonstration of love. Uh, the accident theory by Albert Schweitzer, a more modern man. Uh, accident theory. Uh, the view is that Christ became enamored with his messiahship. As he was preaching the kingdom of God, he was crushed in the process by accident. Uh, Schweitzer saw no value, um, uh, I'm not sure what, no value to others in the death of Christ. Might have. No, oh, no value to others. Okay. thought I might have cut and pasted something. When I <laughs> Can you spell that for me? Uh, the problem is the view centers on the suggestion that Christ's death was a mistake. Scripture doesn't see it that way. Jesus predicted his death. Jesus' death was planned by God. And Jesus' death had value as a substitutionary atonement. The example or martyr theory... Advocated by the Socinian reaction to the reformers in the 16th century, this view is presently held by the Unitarians. Example or martyr theory. The view is that Jesus' death was unnecessary in atoning for sin. Sin did not need to be punished. There is no relationship between Jesus' death and the salvation of sinners. Jesus' obedience unto death should merely inspire people to live as Jesus lived. Christ's death on the cross was an example of how we should trust God completely, even to the point of death. Problem is, is that Jesus is viewed only as a man in this theory. Atonement is unnecessary, yet scripture emphasized the need for atonement. This view says Jesus is the example for unbelievers, but 1 Peter 2.21 tells us Jesus' example was for believers. 
the governmental theory uh, by Grotius in 1583 to 1645. Trying to make a joke about a gross theory, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Got to have those things written out before you go for it. Uh, this view was a compromise between the example theory and the view of the reformers. The view is that God forgives sinners without requiring an equivalent payment. Jesus upheld the principle of government and God's law by making a token payment for sin through his death. God accepted the token payment, set aside the requirement of the law, and was able to forgive sinners because the principle of his government had been upheld. This says that God did not have to require a payment for sinners and that God could have forgiven people simply by choosing to do so without any payment or penalty. The problem is that God would be subject to change. He threatens but does not carry out the sentence. He also forgives sin without payment for sin. If this is so, then why did Christ need to die at all? Scripture teaches the necessity of a propitiation. The wrath of God must be assuaged. And uh, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, also, there's necessity of a substitutionary atonement that it would be made for sin. Um, here's the correct meaning of atonement. Although there are some points of merit in some of the previously discussed views, they are incomplete or deficient in their evaluation of Christ's death. The foundational meaning of the death of Christ is its substitutionary character. He died in place of sinners that he might purchase their freedom, reconcile them to God, and thereby satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. The following terms explain the meaning of Christ's death. First of all, substitution. Jesus' death was substitutionary. He died in the place of sinners. In the Latin, it's vicarious, which means one in place of another. Vicarious. Uh, who's reading right now? Steph? Notice that the ram was offered in place of Isaac. Uh, this was a substitutionary sacrifice, which is exactly what this vicarious means. This, of course, was a type of Jesus who bore the punishment that was rightly due to sinners. Our guilt was imputed into Jesus' account in such a way as he representatively bore our punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jody. Will. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Paul, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was offered once for very sin. No, not you, Nikki. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement 
for our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All ye like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <laughs> Let's, uh, well, I can't, I'm trying to remember if I brought this scripture down later on, but let's read it here and, and put it in our... John, you get the really long scripture again. Bust it out, buddy, with confidence. You got this. Good job, buddy. Uh, oh, hey, no problem. We're going to talk about propitiation uh, in a little bit here. Uh, there's some prepositional phrases, uh, prep- prepositions in uh, this substitution that we're talking about. Uh, there's the anti, uh, which means for sinners or instead of sinners, okay? Um, Jason, you want to read that Matthew passage? Okay, so he gave his life as a ransom instead of the sinners. Um, then there's Hooper, which is on behalf of sinners in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Cheryl and then Ginger and Lou. and Through Jesus' death, the righteous requirements of the law have been met. It was a legal transaction in which Christ dealt with the sin problem for the human race. He became the substitute for humanity's sin. So uh, now we talk about redemption. Uh, One word for redeem is agorazo, and it means to purchase in the marketplace. Often this word was used to describe the sale of slaves, which is fitting because it describes the sinners being purchased out of the slave market of sin and set free from the bondage of sin. Uh, The purchase price for our release from the bondage of sin was the blood of Jesus. Easy. For you were brought, bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. For 
wins? You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves anymore. Kevin? And Leandra? They sang, they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth of Egypt. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they, were, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among them. So that's all, all those words are agorazo, okay, in the Greek. Then we have ex agorazo, which means purchased in the slave market and removed, that's that ex, removed from the market altogether. Believers have been redeemed from the curse and bondage of the law that only condemned and could not save. And uh, just move on down the line. And then we have litru, uh, which means the release on receipt of payment of the ransom price. Will. Yeah. Redemption is sin word. Redemption is sin word. Man, um, S-Y-N-N, E-R-G-Y, synergy. Mankind was in bondage to sin and in need of release from bondage and slavery to sin. Uh, Reconciliation is where we see fellowship restored. It's the word catalasso. The effect of it means to effect a change, to reconcile, to bring back to a former state of harmony. Reconciliation has its emphasis on making peace with God. Sin had built up a wall between God and man, and man made uh, and made man hostile toward God. Isaiah fifty nine two. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
This reconciliation comes through Jesus. The hostility and enmity was removed. God is the one who initiated change or reconciliation. Man is the object of that reconciliation. So God is the one who stepped in and brought us, tore down that middle wall of separation that we could have fellowship restored. And uh, Cheryl there. Okay, so we've been reconciled, and now we've been committed a ministry of reconciling the world to him. Um, Being ambassadors, that passage goes on to say. Uh, Reconciliation is man-word. Man was the one that had been moved out of fellowship because of sin, and man needed to be reconciled to renew the fellowship. Propitiation means the death of Christ fully satisfies all of the righteous demands of God toward the sinner. God is righteous and just and cannot overlook the sin, but through the work of Jesus, God is satisfied that his righteous standards have been met. Uh, In Hebrew, it's the word kafar, means to cover, speaking of a ritual covering of sin. It's also atonement. Uh, Or in the Greek, halaskomai. And it uh, means to propitiate, uh, to appease, or placate. In Luke 18, 13, the repentant tax collector prays that his sins would be propitiated. Uh, In the King James Version, be merciful to me. Uh, Hebrews 2, 17. Where are we at? Uh, We already have read Romans 3, 23 through 26 tonight, so for the sake of time, we'll hop over that one. Uh, Propitiation is related to several concepts of satisfaction. Uh, First of all, the wrath of God towards sin is satisfied. God provided the remedy through Jesus' blood being a satisfaction for sin. And three, the holiness of God is satisfied. Propitiation is God word. God is propitiated. His holiness is freed from any question of guilt and satisfied by the death of Christ. Forgiveness, a legal act of God where the charges held against the sinner are removed because satisfaction and atonement for those sins has been made. Uh, Kerizomai... You might note the first half of that is charis. Uh, So the the concept is to forgive out of benevolent grace. Grace Grace-based forgiveness. A cancellation of a debt. Preservation of a person in peril. Interesting that that forgiveness is preservation of a person in peril as we talk about salvation and being saved. Uh, Colossians 2, Lou. 
Forgiveness solves the problem of sin in the believer's life. All sins, past, present, and future, our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus, as that Colossians passage closes there. Um, another word for forgiveness is, af, uh, probably saying it wrong, aphemai, to let go, to release, or to send away. It's the most common form of forgive. Blaine? Forgiveness is different than the daily cleansing from sin that maintains fellowship with God, as 1 John 1 9 uh, speaks of. And then Hebrews 9 22, easy. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, pardon, deliverance, forgiveness. Forgiveness is manward. Man sinned and needed those sins removed. Justification. Justification is the act when the gavel in heaven is slammed down and the sinner is declared innocent. To be justified is to be legally declared righteous on the basis of the blood of Christ. Justification involves the pardon. So we're talking kind of the legal aspect of uh, salvation here. The pardon and removal of all sins and the end of separation from God. Rinse. Kevin? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. <clears throat> and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Leandra? how that verse ended up there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, horrible, horrible. Um, ju uh, justification also involves the bestowal of righteousness upon the believing person, a title to all the blessings promised to the just. Romans 4, 6, and 7. Justification is a gift of God's grace. Justification takes place the moment a person has faith in Christ. The grounds for justification is the death of Christ. The grounds for justification is the death of Christ. 
The means of justification is faith. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is man-word. Man sinned, broke God's standards, was in need of receiving the righteousness of God to enter into fellowship with God. Regeneration. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Oh, ha, <laughs> mm, Helps to have the teacher's notes. It's a prophecy of the new covenant where Ezekiel prophesies, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we had no power to uh, keep the law. Uh, the law didn't have power in and of itself. And so uh, in the new covenant, uh, the Lord changes us from the inside out and transforms us and gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. To um, The law was kept in Jesus, and as we're saved, the sanctification is worked out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that process where the heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is placed in, and the Spirit of God put within us and it's causing us to walk in the statutes is uh, called regeneration or rebirth. It's where we get the phrase born again. To be born again is opposed to and distinguished from our first birth when we were conceived in sin. And in John chapter 3, Jesus uh, gives that distinguish, uh, that difference to Nicodemus as he comes in the night. Uh, our new birth is a spiritual one. It's holy, it's a heavenly birth, signified by being made alive in the spiritual sense. Our first birth, birth, on the other hand, was one of spiritual death because of inherited sin. Man in his natural state is dead in trespasses and sins until we are made alive, regenerated, by Christ when we place our faith in him. Uh, I think uh, Cheryl read the Titus 3 passage, how we are... Uh, born again in the Spirit, uh, washed in regeneration of the Spirit. Uh, after regeneration, we begin to see and hear and seek after divine things and to live a life of faith and holiness. Uh, now Christ is formed in the hearts. We are now partakers of the uh, divine nature, having been made new creatures. God, not man, is the source of this. Ephesians 2, 1, 8. I think Easy read that earlier. Uh, it is not by men's works, but by God's own good will and pleasure, his great love and free gift, his rich grace and abundant mercy are the cause of it. And these attributes of God are displayed in the regeneration and conversion of sinners. Regeneration is part of the salvation package, if you will, along with the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the adoption as sons and daughters, the reconciliation with God and many other salvation concepts. Being born again or born from above is parallel to regeneration. Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. These are some scriptures I jotted down tonight before I had my notes finished up. Um, and uh, so there's this parallel 
born again, regeneration, uh, same thing there. Uh, Regeneration, simply put, is God making a person spiritually alive, a new creation, as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. The reason regeneration is necessary is that prior to salvation, we were not God's children. Rather, we were children of wrath. Before salvation, we were degenerate. After salvation, we are regenerate or regenerated. The result of regeneration is peace with God, new life, and eternal sonship. This regeneration is eternal and begins the process of sanctification, wherein we become the people God intended for us to be. The Bible is clear that the only means of regeneration is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. No amount of good works or keeping of the law can regenerate a heart, uh, which from birth is deceitful and wicked above all things, Jeremiah says. This concept of the new birth is unique to Christianity. No other religion offers a cure for the total depravity of the human heart. Preferring instead, other religions will outline an often massive body of works and deeds that must be done to gain favor with God or whatever God they have. God has told us, though, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Total regeneration of the heart is necessary for salvation. Paul explains this concept perfectly in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is true regeneration. So we'll end there tonight and uh, with the doctrine of soteriology. And then uh, next week, we'll kind of look at such sovereign acts of God in salvation, like election, predestination, effectual calling, um, and things like that. So neat, neat things, uh, exciting things, things that bring much glory to God. Uh, Again, everything we've studied tonight, even though much of what we looked at was our response to God's gift, um, it was all God's initiations, God's work. It was by no works of ours that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his own purpose, he saved us. According to his grace, he has saved us. So, um, this has practical outworkings in every area of ministry, you know. Uh, Many of you are in children's ministry, you know, and uh, you are surrounded by a bunch of sinners, (laughs) all right, who need the gospel preached to them, all right, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure I remember ever hearing the gospel from my Sunday school teachers, you know, it was like, slap the little felt Jesus up on the board or something, and, you know, maybe I did, I'm not sure, I I was in the same Sunday school as Lindsay, I don't know if she remembers, but, man, I just encourage you guys as we're learning these truths of the gospels, as you're teaching kids, and as you're in your core group, like, man, look at what sin is, sin is sin, sin is real, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, look at the effects of sin, look at the fallen condition, uh, and enter in God's plan of redemption through that. Um, and, uh, 
man, when we're teaching, I'm just thinking of children, you know, and uh, when we're teaching kids, we don't want to just preach moralism to the kids, you know. We want to, this is not moralism, what we studied tonight. We're talking about, you know, little Jimmy, you need to be saved. You need to be saved by grace through faith, you know. You need to trust and rest and believe in what Jesus has done for you, you know. Lindsay was saying on her ride to school today with Russell, like she was able to just walk through again, you know, with Russell, what uh, what it is to be a Christian. And it was just so cool that he, as a seven-year-old, was able to just, like, preach the gospel to Lindsay, you know. And we were having lunch together today, Lindsay, and I was like, I didn't know this stuff until I was, like, 14, you know. And, like, praise the God. Praise the God. There's one. There's one God. Praise the God that our kids are hearing the gospel, you know. So I just encourage you guys, like, Got rotten little sinners in those little classes, you know. We love them to death, but they need to hear, like, they're sinners, that they're in need of a Savior. They need to repent of their sin. They need to trust in Jesus. Did you know, even in my parenting, I just find myself telling Russell, just stop it! (laughs) Kind of the uh, Bob Newhart clip that we watch. (laughs) I have to show that one of these school ministries. How do you counsel people? Bob Newhart, okay. Um, But, uh, saying... With Russell, you know, I'll, I'll be like, just don't do that anymore. And it was just cool the other day when he was like, how? How do I not do that anymore? <laughs> you know, and it's, it was like, man, you need to rest in Jesus doing it. Jesus did it. And now you need to pray that he would empower you to, to obey now. And, I mean, just so, such simple logic from a seven-year-old. How? How? I just keep doing it, you know? Or, or, L- or Lainey was, like, saying stuff that was just sinful. And she's like, but my mouth wants to say it, Dad, you know? And it was like, well, you need to pray that, you know, Jesus would empower you over, you know, you have power over the flesh in Christ, you know? But uh, just need to see that in our parenting, even, you know? And we don't want to, like, remove the gospel. And we don't want to remove the power from children, you know, a children's ministry. And it's the same with, if you just said, wife, submit. Like, you're stripping away the whole rest of the book of Ephesians, and you're just looking at Ephesians 5.22. Wife, submit. There's no power in that, you know. You're putting her under the law. But when you bring the rest of the scripture that's all about the power and the, you know, the motivation and all that behind it, you know, so. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.